You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Father, we are, we are grateful that you are God and we are here for you today. Father, we pray as we, as we continue to worship you that uh, you would prevent me from error. I, I want, want to be sure not to blaspheme your name by saying anything um, from your word that isn't true. So Lord, I pray that you protect your hearers from, from any error that I might impart. I, I pray, Lord, that you would, be, uh, you would be heard this morning from your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our scripture passage for today is 1 Timothy 5. I'm going to start with verse 17. Uh, before we dig into that, I want to just give you really briefly while you're turning there a little bit of the scene of 1 Timothy. So I'm sure you remember from a year ago when we talked about 1 Timothy, right? Bryce does? Okay. Aiden? No. Okay, so the, the setting was Paul and Timothy had been at Ephesus together, and then Paul had gone on and left Timothy there at the church in Ephesus to deal with some of the problems that they were having there. One of the problems, the one we're going to emphasize today, is they had unqualified leadership. They had unqualified men as elders in that church, and so they had a lot of struggles. And so Timothy was to remove these men. He was to restore the church to its proper function, its proper organization, proper leadership. All right, so the epistle is giving to, given to Timothy and to us for a very specific purpose. The purpose is actually revealed to us in 1 Timothy 3, and I know I already had to turn to 5, so I'll read that to you. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Paul says, I, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the pillar and buttress of the truth. So the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, is giving us instruction in this epistle on how we ought to conduct ourselves as a church, and as individuals within the church. So a couple of things I want you to notice about that. First, the church is called the household of God, or the very family of God. It illustrates that the church is very precious in God's sight. Right? The church was bought with a high price of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is precious in the sight of God. There's nothing on earth that is more precious to him than his church, his family, his bride. The church is also called the pillar and buttress of the truth, of the support of the truth. The church is the one thing that holds up the truth against constant attack in this world. Okay? That's the church's role. It's the church that proclaims the truth of the scriptures. It's the church that demonstrates God's holiness. It's the church that demonstrates God's character and glorifies him through our own good deeds and our own good character and through the testimony of the gospel. The work of the church is vital. Right? So the work of the church has to proceed. It has to accomplish its ends. And the only way for us to accomplish his ends is to behave as he would have us behave as directed to us here in his word. And First Timothy is basically a manual for how to do church, how we are to conduct ourselves as individuals and as a church corporately. And again, one of the central aspects of First Timothy addresses is, her, is the church's leadership. Look, if the church is precious and if her work is important, then her leadership matters, right? And so we had that passage of 1 Timothy 3 that we did a year ago that Jim read this morning that gives us those qualifications. Similar list of qualifications in Titus chapter 1. So there's actually quite a bit given on qualification. Right? We're not going to go through all of that again because 
we have to do something else. We did that a year ago, and you've all got it memorized. And if not, you can flip back. But those qualifications are absolutely vital. We're not going to compromise on any of those. But here we're given another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 5, and it is on the, the role and the function and treatment of elders, and that's what we're going to look at today. Uh, so let's read that together. We're going to read uh, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. So the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. All right, so we're going to go through this verse by verse. We'll start with verse 17. The elders who rule well are be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So here we see the general role and function of elders. Elders are to rule and elders are to preach and teach. Okay, So let's look at each of the functions. First, elders are to rule the church. Now the word that's translated rule in verse 17 is translated as manage back in chapter 3 when we look at the qualifications where elders and deacons have to manage their own household well. That's the same word. Okay, So the, the word is, is translated rule or manage. It mean, literally means to stand in front of. Okay, So it has the idea of leading a modeling of behavior that is to be imitated and followed and obeyed, and the leader paying attention to those that are under their authority, under their accountability. Right? So elders are to rule, They're to be imitated and obeyed by their congregation, by the people with whom they live and worship. But now let's think about that. For an elder to be imitated, they must be imitable. That's a hard word for me to say, but I said it right. I was really thinking I wouldn't say that right, so that's like a major victory. Imitable. I said it twice. That means they must be worthy of imitation. First Peter 5.3 commands elders to be examples to the flock. Right? We have, again, this long list of qualifications in chapter 3. We have a, a list of qualifications in Titus 1. The elder is imitable so long as he is qualified. Right? That's what makes him that work. So if we can get qualification right, what, what the scriptures indicate to us, if we get scripture, if we get qualification right, if we only have as leaders in our church men who are qualified biblically, we've gone a long way towards doing church right. We've gone a long way towards having our elders' situation handled. Okay? There's very little other direction given regarding elders. There's this passage we're going to look at here. Uh, there's a few others, but it's really surprisingly sparse instruction outside of qualification, because qualification is the thing that matters most. We have to get that right. And we also have to understand that qualification is not a lifetime appointment. All right? It's not a man is qualified, and so now he's an elder, and so now we pay no attention to his life at all forever after. All right? No, this you'll see as we go through this passage, it's all about ongoing assessment of a man. A man must remain qualified. We have to remain vigilant as to his qualification. 
All right. So long as we do that, we've gone a long way towards having proper leadership. But the ruling role, I want you to understand, is more than just imitation. The role of the elders is to rule the church. All right. The role of these men, these men that are recognized as qualified by the other elders, recognized by the church as qualified, recognized even by reputation by outsiders as being qualified, having a good reputation with outsiders, these men are to rule the church. That means they're to be obeyed by the congregation. Getting uncomfortable yet? No, not yet? Okay. So we're to obey the men who hold the office of elder in our fellowship. So I want to think about what that means exactly. Are we really to obey men? I thought we were to obey God, right? We're to obey God, not men. But the scripture tells us to obey our elders. So, so how do we understand that? Well, we're to obey God, right? I think we'd agree on that. So that means we're to understand, we're to learn the scriptures, we're to heed the scriptures, we're to be in obedience to the scriptures. So how do we do that? Practically, as a practical matter, one grace that God has given us, one gift that he's given us, is the leadership of qualified men who are adept at handling the word of God and who are committed to making sure that the church corporately and individually that lives out the word of God, that's in obedience to the word of God. All right? These are, so long as these men are men who are leading in obedience to God for the glory of God, then they're to be obeyed. We don't follow men who lead to their own glory, right? In obedience to themselves. That's the difference. Okay, elders rule by bringing to bear the word of God on the lives of the local church. That's how I kind of summarized the work of the elder last, last time. So long as they do that faithfully, then they're to be, to be obeyed in that. But understand, that's their only authority. The only authority the elder has is the authority of the Word of God. Okay? That's the only appeal that they have. Okay? So whether it's in a, din- a dinner conversation at your house, uh, whether it's from the pulpit, uh, Sunday school class, newsletter, the only authority that the elder, the only authority that you have to obey is the authority of the Word of God. Okay? So long as the man is qualified, so long as the man is faithful to the word, then he's to be obeyed. Okay? Just to be clear, I don't see anywhere where the scriptures tell us to trust our elders, but we're to obey them. Okay? We're to be in constant discernment mode, to be assessing what they say, make sure that what they say is in conformity to the word of God. Okay, so elders are to rule. It also says elders are to preach and teach. It's the other part of the role of the elder. Uh, preaching here just means in word and refers to the spoken, uh, spoken teaching, this kind of thing. Where teaching and preaching, or where teaching is the more general term that could mean a Sunday school class or a, a newsletter article or, or any sort of, I guess, a, a blog. That's, that's what you say, a blog. People have blogs. Right? I don't know really what that is, but it's a, where they write things down and you read it. So any sort of opportunity to share from the Word of God, that would be under the heading of teaching. Okay, So that's the role of the elder, to teach and to preach. Now, teaching, being able to teach one of the qualifications in both uh, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy and also in Titus, it's because it's essential to the role. You have to be able to teach from the Word of God. All right, so that's we understand the role. Now, this says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. 
So I want to understand what it means to honor elders. Okay, so we'll look at that. So first of all, which elders are we to honor? Well, it says the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. The elders who rule well. Now, I want to look at the idea of double honor in a second. What exactly, what does double honor mean? We'll look at that in a second. But first of all, which elders? So it's the elders that rule well. Now, understand all elders are to rule. It's part of the role of the elder. Uh, so what does it mean to rule well? Right? Who are these people as distinct? Well, well, the word well means both that the activity is done properly, appropriately, and well, and also that the results are observably good. So an elder who rule well would be doing the job of ruling well, and you would look at the church and say the results of his ruling, his leadership, are good. The church is productive. All right? So the implication is there are degrees of effectiveness in the ruling function. Presumably there are people, there are men, elders who don't rule well, and they're not worthy of double honor whatever this double honor is, right? The elders who rule well are worthy of double honor. It doesn't mean necessarily they're not worthy of any honor, uh, but all we know for sure is that the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Then especially those who do what? Those who, my, my translation says, work hard at preaching and teaching. Uh, the idea here is that they work themselves to the point of exhaustion in their work in preaching and teaching. Right? They get tired. Uh, from their preparation and the delivery of their lessons and, and sermons. Okay? So we're looking at quality and quantity of work. Now, there's one take on this verse that I think I have to address because I think it's wrong and it's very common. That there are elders who rule well, and then there are elders who rule and also do teaching and preaching. That they're distinct groups. And those who do both are worthy of this double honor. I think what that's trying to do is justify a modern distinction between a pastor and an elder. Right? So you have a pastor, and what a pastor does is he rules and he also preaches and teaches. And what elders do, well, we don't really know. They must do some sort of eldering thing, which is some sort of ruling. Right? And that's so we can make that designation and we can then offer honor to the one and, and not so much to the others. That's completely foreign to the New Testament. There is no pastor-elder designation in the New Testament. Okay, The word pastor is the word shepherd, and it's just another word for elder and overseer. It's all the same office. So I don't, I don't think that take is correct. So if that's not correct, then what does it mean? Well, the best way to understand something is just the literal understanding. What it means is the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, and especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Right? All elders have as their role ruling and preaching and teaching, but those that do it especially well and work especially hard at it are worthy of this double honor. Okay, so what is double honor? I'm going to start off with this brilliant statement because it's here in my notes, so I have to say it. Double, the word double means twice as much. So I hope that's on the tape. Uh, but it, it, it actually means twice as much, but it, it's also used as a general term to just mean significantly more. It's used in the New Testament that way. It doesn't imply numerical precision exactly twice as much. We use the, the term in the same sort of way. Like I might say, Justin is twice as handsome as I am. Now, you can't measure ha- twice as much. The people up here are going three, four, eight. 
twice as twice as handsome. You can't measure handsomeness, right? You can't measure it. There's not a number for that, as far as I know. So when I say that, it doesn't mean that it's, that Justin is precisely twice as handsome. It just means significantly more. And that, that's the way we use the term, and that's the way it's used in the New Testament. Okay. So the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of significantly more honor, double honor. Okay. So what does honor mean? Well, honor, and, and this this is where there's some controversy. What does honor mean? It generally means perception of, or measure of value, esteem. Uh, it's often translated as price because that's the way we measure value, right? Sometimes it means uh, monetary payment. And in 1 Timothy 5.3, where the reference is to widows, uh, that it means monetary payment, same word. So the question here is, does it refer to paying elders, money, material compensation, or does it mean esteem, uh, value, pats on the back, you know, um, encouraging cards, stuff like that? Does it mean honor, or does it mean pay? Well, here it means pay, it means material compensation. And how do I say that with certainty? Look at verse 18, it explains verse 17. The scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. It's referring to payment, to compensation. Okay? All right. That's the clear meaning. So one thing that has to be clear today, because surprisingly there is controversy, there is disputing about this fact. Elders are to be paid. Okay? It's, it's a biblical practice to pay men who do the work of an elder at the quality and quantity of work that's being uh, mentioned in verse 17. Okay? So honor means pay. So let's put this together for a second. Elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Okay? Now, does that mean that less effective elders have no right to ask for any compensation for their work? No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says they're not worthy of this significantly greater compensation, right? But elders who do, who give less of their time and effort to the church, they can exercise the right to be paid if they so desire and in a reasonable way that's within the budget constraints of the church. That's fine. Now, it's completely unbiblical. Well, I should say non-biblical because I don't think it's sinful. I want to say that, but it's non-biblical to assert differences among elders in office, in authority. There, there's no diff, there, you won't find a youth pastor in the New Testament, for instance. You won't find an associate pastor, or assistant pastor, or senior pastor in the New Testament. There's just elders, and they jointly rule the, the church. But there clearly are differences among authority within that group, not of the office itself, but of men. Like Peter was chief among the apostles. So you can recognize that. And you can, it's biblical then to also recognize differences in the amount of success and the amount of effort that men put forward as you compensate them. That's all perfectly fine. Right? Also, like Paul, an elder can exercise the right to be unpaid if he wants to. Uh, imagine Jim was digging in his garden and he struck oil. Okay? Right now, I think he's only struck cucumbers which are valuable and good, but not the same as oil. 
So if he struck oil and he had so much money, just money coming out of his ears, right? And he, he didn't need to be paid in order to do the work that he does. Well, he might choose to be unpaid. Might choose to forgo a salary. But he wouldn't have to. Right? He would still have the right to be paid based on this principle. All right? The laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay. So then a practical matter arises. It's a difficult practical matter. How much should we pay a paid elder? It's decided a lot of ways. If you've ever been part of it, it's decided a lot of ways in different churches. There's a bewildering and common method of finding out what the high school principal is paid. Because that's in the Bible. All right? Uh, it may make sense. I'm not, I'm not, I am being critical, but I didn't mean to be. Um, people look at median incomes, they look at the man's expenses. Sometimes they try to decide if his wife should work or if uh, he should have cable TV and what kind of package he should get if he gets a, a TV package. Should he have a cell phone? Uh, should his kids be able to get braces? Should he have pets? You know, they try to figure out those sorts of things. What does the Bible say? What's the question we should ask? How effective is he at his work? The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. How hard does he work? Especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Those are the principles. That's how you determine his compensation. Now, the good news for me is in terms of dollars and cents, I get to leave that to the stewards, our stewardship committee. Now, we as elders are so responsible and accountable for that, but our stewards do... Tremendous work that we're very thankful for in putting together the budgets of our church. And so they're aware of all the financial issues and, and, and things that are expenses in the church. And they, they work hard to determine what the salary of our, our staff should be. And we're, we're, again, very grateful for that. But the principle that they have to use is this one. The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. All right? Okay, so how much should an elder be paid then? Well, I don't know. We're not given a spreadsheet for that. But all we can say is this principle. A man who excels at his work, he puts a lot of effort into it, should be given significant compensation, double honor. Okay, so that gives you some clarity on the role of elders and honoring elders. Now the text turns in verse 19 to protection of elders. Verse 19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. That is, we're not to entertain or consider an accusation and pursue it on the basis of one accusation. We need to have corroboration of the, the event. Okay? And at least one other person that knows what really happened. This is the same protection that's given all the way back to Israel in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 19.15 A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he's committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. This is the same protection that the Lord gave in Matthew 18 in the context of church discipline. It can't be one person. So it's an established principle that we're to not to take an accusation from one person and confront somebody with that. We're to establish the truth of it. Okay. So here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that if somebody comes to you with an accusation against an elder, or really against anybody, but against an elder in this context, that you say, okay, well, you're a person and I'm a person. That's two peoples. So let's go and now we can publish it, right? Let's, let's write a letter to the editor. That's not what it means. 
it, it doesn't mean if two people come to you and say, yeah, we both, we, this is, that you then publish it. Okay? If a matter has been established by more than one witness, that's when you entertain that accusation. And it means that's when you begin to look into it and investigate it and find out the truth of it. All right. So now why is this here? Why is this here? This is an established principle all the way back from the Old Testament. The Lord himself had established this principle. Why does it need to be repeated in the context of elders? It's almost as if elders are especially prone to false accusation. Right? No. (laughs) Now, elders are prone to false accusation. Why is that? Well, think about it. There's several reasons. Elders have to get involved sometimes in family disputes, sometimes husbands and wives, or sometimes, believe it or not, people are unreasonable. Right? And so you get in the middle of that and there's some heat there, and so it can, things can get exaggerated and accusations can be made. Uh, elders also teach against things that people hold dear. We're going to have a same-sex symposium in November. Right? That's going to make us a target of some accusations, I'm sure. Because that's not something that's popular. What we're gonna, what we're gonna say. Okay. But I think, I think the biggest reason is a lot of times people hold up elders, especially the man that they would unbiblically designate as the pastor. They hold them up as if they ought to be perfect. Right? Oh, you see what he did? They don't extend to them the same grace that they would extend to another believer, another brother or sister in Christ. And so I think that's why this is repeated here. Okay. So we're not to entertain an accusation or receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. But it's not blanket protection, is it? There's a, there's some, there could be some actual sin or disqualification that has to be dealt with. Remember the context. Timothy's dealing with men who are unqualified. Men who are sinners, men who are sinning in ways that are obvious. And so he has to deal with that. So how does he do it? What's the process of discipline for a sinning elder? Well, look at verse 20. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. That's the process. Public rebuke and removal from office once, a, once an accusation has been established. Right? Now, there's some disagreement over exactly what continue in sin means. You might, yours might just say those who are sinning. Uh, the tense of the verb implies a present activity, a continuing activity. Right? So the question really is, if a man has shown his sin, if an elder has shown his sin, is he re- and he repents of it, does he then have to be rebuked publicly and removed from office? Is it necessary in that case? Well, remember the context. This is a sin of such a type that it becomes publicly known and corroborated by multiple witnesses. If a man is guilty of that sort of a sin, he is disqualified. How do I know he's disqualified? 1 Timothy 3.2. You can flip back. The blanket qualification in 1 Timothy 3.2. An overseer then must be above reproach. And then the specifics follow. Must be above reproach. A sin that is publicly acknowledged, corroborated by multiple witnesses, that's a reproach. The man's not above reproach, therefore not qualified. Okay? So whether or not he was repentant, such a man would have to be 
publicly rebuked and removed from office, at least for a time. Like if we were to hush something like that up and just let the man leave quietly, some churches do, it just causes confusion in the flock. It causes dissension, division. Can't do that. If an elder has sinned, especially in a related qualification, he has to be removed from office and publicly rebuked. It doesn't mean that he can't be restored. And we talk about restoration a little bit. If a man does repent of the sin and time passes and he's even qualified again, he could be restored. Look, we all sin, right? We're all, as believers, at war with sin. That characterizes our life. We're trying to kill the sins of the flesh. That's, that's our life. We're at war. So we sin. Right? We're always in that battle. So wouldn't this mean then that there's never anybody who can be an elder because we all sin? Well, no. Remember the context. This is a, a sin of such a type and degree that it becomes publicly known and corroborated by multiple witnesses. It generates a reproach. I don't think this is an angry moment, you know, an impure thought or driving 10 miles over the speed limit. Okay? It's not that. This is this type of sin that become, can become publicly known and become an issue, generates a reproach. Okay. Now, something else it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that every disqualification requires a public rebuke and removal from office. This is a disqualification. It does require removal from office if, it, if it's a disqualification. But there are some disqualifications that don't require a public rebuke because they're not caused by sin. Okay? So imagine a man who loses his ability to teach because of an illness or an accident or something like that. That's not a sin, but he's not qualified. He has to be removed from office. Okay? But there's no rebuke or something like that. All right. Now, why is that so important? Why is that public discipline so important? Well, uh, let's see what verse verse 20. It says that the rest will. Well, I have two translations here. The rest will be fearful of sinning, or that the rest may stand in fear. Right? That's why the public part of the rebuke is so necessary. Now, the rest here probably means the other elders, but imagine this: if there were a public rebuke and removal of, from office of of an elder, you're going to think about your sin too, aren't you? You're going to see the gravity of sin. You're going to see how much God hates sin. We, we can't tolerate sin in the body, especially in leadership. Okay, That's why it has to be publicly dealt with. Now, do you think that would be difficult? Now, put yourself in Timothy's shoes for a second. Timothy's a relatively young guy. Uh, he's left alone in this big church in Ephesus. First thing, one of the first things he has to do now that Paul has left is he's supposed to remove unqualified men from leadership. He's an outsider coming into this big church. Has to publicly rebuke them. Sound easy? Uh, look at verse 21. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. That's a solemn charge, isn't it? You better do this. You better do this. You better follow these rules. You better maintain these principles. Qualification, honor, protection, discipline. You better do this. God has given us this direction. Paul charged Timothy with this in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and his chosen angels. This isn't a matter to be taken lightly. We're talking about leadership of God's church, his household. We're talking about the pillar and support of the, of the truth. 
Right? We can't take its leadership lightly. God hates sin. He hates it. Church is not to tolerate it, especially in leadership. Right? We have to obey these commands. So then Paul gives Timothy verse 22, which is very helpful, I'm sure, to him. It says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Okay, you see the flow? It's so important that you have leadership right. Don't be hasty in identifying someone as a leader. Take your time. That's what the laying on of hands is here, is the public recognition of someone as a leader. Right? It says don't do that. Don't be hasty in that and then share in the responsibility of the sin of others. Where it says keep yourself pure, keep yourself free from sin, I think that means the sin of the elder, and of a, of a bad elder, an unqualified elder. Be care, very careful in qualifying a man so you don't share in the responsibility of the damage he might do to God's bride. Alright? We don't want to do that. Don't be hasty. Do the, t- the testing that is required. Okay? Now, it's, it's not an accident that this appears here in context. It's a context of disciplining someone, of, de- of declaring a man to be unqualified or disqualified. So I don't think that this, this being, this, uh, warning against being hasty is primarily about qualifying a man for the first time, like we're doing with Cornell. I think it is more about restoring a man who has been deemed disqualified. You have to be very careful in that. Okay, there's, when that happens, there's always a, a, a kind of a energy to try to quickly restore the man. We're not to do that. We're not to be hasty. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that there's no possibility of restoration. There's always a possibility of restoration. Well, not always. Uh, but there's often possibility of restoration if enough time passes. The man has repented and he's demonstrated himself to be qualified again. There are some sins that rise to the level of permanent disqualification. I was going to do some examples, uh, but in a you know group of kids, you don't want to do too many examples. So, one financial impropriety. Somebody who's a thief who steals from the church, basically, who takes advantage of the natural generosity of believers. Someone who does that. They're disqualified. They're lovers of money. It would be really hard to qualify such a man again, wouldn't it? You guys don't watch TBN. Oh, you really don't watch TBN. That's awesome. Justin does it for us, so we don't have to. (laughs) I sometimes go flip through those channels to see what's going on, and it's pretty much the same thing has been going on there for a while. There's always a 1-800 number. Right? People who are stealing from, I see it as stealing from people. Right? They're in it for the money. Somebody who does that, very difficult to trust them and ever would be very difficult to ever qualify them again as a, as a Christian, as, a, as an elder, or as a Christian either. Uh, other sins can be dealt with, um, you know, can be, can be uh, repented of, the man restored. Uh, imagine somebody who's temporarily lost their ability to control their temper because of medication or of a, a, a loss, a personal loss, a family member, something like that. Well, they'd be temporarily disqualified from eldership because they can't they, they've lost their self-control. They're not gentle, they're not temperate, all those things. Uh, but they could be restored after some time passed. Okay? So restoration always takes time. The amount of time isn't specified. We're just not to be hasty. Not to be hasty either in the initial qualification and we haven't been hasty with Cornell. <laughs> We've taken actually quite a long time 
but the time isn't specified, so longer time is better. But we're not to be hasty in that, and we're also not to be hasty in restoring someone who's been deemed disqualified. Now, what about verse 23? How does that fit? No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Oh, boy. It doesn't seem to be related, does it? And I'm not going to talk about alcohol and the whole alcohol thing because my time's running out. I think this is just Paul's way of saying, Timothy, don't go overboard here. Don't take this to mean you have absolutely no freedom, that you have to be perfect in everyone's sight. It's not a sin to drink a little wine. And for you, Timothy, it's necessary, so you ought to do it. I think it's an aside to Timothy for that purpose. Fits in the context. All right. 24, verses 24 and 25. This is great encouragement to Timothy. It's something he would definitely need right now. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. All right, so in context, this is about qualification, assessment, restoration of elders. And it's just telling Timothy, Timothy, I know I'm putting this charge on you, but it's really not that hard to qualify people. Right? Look at it. The sins of some men are quite evident. All right, you're going to go into that church at Ephesus and look around and go, mm, he's not qualified, he's not qualified, she's definitely not qualified. All right? Be able to do that fairly easily. Um, because of some disqualification or some sin disqualification. Some, the sins of some men are quite evident. Before you even have to begin any judgment assessment, it's plain. For others, their sins follow after. So Timothy, you do have to do the assessment. You do have to spend time with them. You have to ask about them. You have to get to know them. But their sins do follow after. And you can be sure of that. If you spend the time, you're not hasty, uh, you'll find out if a man is disqualified. Right? Likewise, also deeds that are good are quite evident. Very often, a person's good deeds, the, the, the work that they're doing, the work that they would do as an elder, they're already doing it, and it becomes obvious. Uh, use Jess as an example. Right? Imagine Timothy walked in here today and didn't know any of us. He'd been sent by Paul, and he's supposed to assess whether someone's qualified for eldership. wouldn't take very long to find out the impact that Jess has had on our lives. Right? Wouldn't take very long. The the deed, some good deeds are quite evident. Now those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Those those are good deeds that aren't so obvious, but they can't be concealed. Timothy, spend some time in assessment. Spend some time getting to know them, and you will see that the man is doing the work of the elder. Okay, so it's not all that hard. Now, we can struggle with some of the qualifications. Right? If you remember any of the qualifications. Uh, husband of one wife or one woman man. People struggle with that a little bit. Or uh, in, in Titus 1, having children who believe. We struggle with understanding what that means a little bit. I don't, but uh, other people disagree with me. Other wrong people. But in general, it's not that hard to qualify people. Right? It's not that hard. So along these lines, we announced in January at the annual meeting, that Jim and Jess and I had observed Cornell Razor as performing the work of an elder in the flock. He's assisted in the ruling function as in stewards and in some of the meetings that we've had. He's been active in a teaching role in Sunday school and preaching. 
He's done that. All right, so we ask that you help us in the testing and evaluation of Cornell. We asked you at that time. Uh, we don't want to be hasty in the laying out of hands, right? So we ask you to evaluate his life in light of the qualifications of First Timothy and, and Titus. We did the same. So we observed no evident sins. Sins of some men are quite evident. We didn't observe any. Not that he's sinless. But we didn't observe any disqualifications. And we've waited and given things time to see if there are any sins that would follow after. We haven't seen any. Cornell's good deeds have been quite evident. And since I've gotten to know him a little more, I've seen some of the, the good deeds that weren't quite so evident at first. All right? So we're following this process. Hopefully you've done the same. I haven't heard of any disqualifications. None of us as elders have heard of any disqualifications for Cornell. So it's our intention today. Because we've continued to observe Cornell, we haven't, we've continued to see him perform the work of an elder. There have been no disqualification. It's our intention to publicly recognize him as an elder of Cooney Community Church. Right, so I would like to have Jess, can you come up? And Cornell and Jim. And we will pray with Cornell. Here, I'll just uh, say a couple of things. Come on over here, Jess. Uh, Jess would normally pray at this time, and then I would pray, and Dave is going to close us in prayer. But the smoke has taken Jess's voice away, so he's unable to really talk uh, today. So I'm going to pray. We're going to lay hands on Cornell. Cornell, could you just come over here? We'll lay hands on Cornell, and I will pray, and then Jess will close us in prayer. I uh, just want to mention one thing before we before we pray. Uh, you have seen a great explanation of how this process is to be unfolded in the church. God has, because the church is important to him, God has given us the manner by which we are to recognize elders in the flock. He has not left church governance up to our whims or our creativity or a wheel to be reinvented. We don't do this this way because it works for Kootenai Community Church. We do this this way because it is biblical. That's the only reason. There is the biblical way, and then there is everything else that is done under the sun. There's the biblical way and everything else. So we don't do this just because this works for us. We do this because this is what God has ordained in his word that is to be done in this way. Our church structure is set up the way it is because it is biblical, not because it just happens to be a good way to do it in our context, in our American context, or in Kootenai. So this is God's method, and we are very joyful and thankful that God has brought uh, another man to join us in this work. And it is a blessing to you to have a group of men who do this, and not just one. And it is a blessing to us to be part of a group of men that shepherd the flock and uh, not just to to pull that load uh, as individuals or one person doing that. So will you stand with me as we pray? Our gracious God and Father, we are so thankful to you for the way in which you have given us instructions regarding your church, how it is to be run, how it is to be shepherded, and we thank you for the men that you have brought here to this body it is a joy to be part of this body, and you have given us a group of believers to shepherd and to oversee that make it truly a joy to be under shepherds of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are thankful for that, for the giftedness of those who are here, for their generosity, their encouragement, their love, and for the mutual love that is shared in this body between uh, those who shepherd and teach and those who are the beneficiaries of the hard work of, of the men who are up here. We thank you for your grace to your church, your body, and for bringing us Cornell. It is our desire that you would, for your own glory, and by your power, strengthen him and encourage him. Use him in the years ahead to minister to this body, to be a blessing, a rich one to all of us. May you continue to keep him qualified and called to this, this service and this role. And may you strengthen him to put to death the deeds of the flesh 
to mortify sin, to resist temptation, and to serve and love and be a, a complete blessing to this body. May you be glorified through this, for we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Father, we are grateful for Cornell, and we do pray, Lord, that you would protect him, you would protect his family, that he might maintain his, his qualification, his ability to serve this church. And Lord, we know that this church is precious to you. It's part of your family. It's, uh, it's your household. It's your bride. Bought again with the, with the high price of the blood of our Savior. We're so grateful for that. And we know that the work of this church is important. And so we pray, Lord, that the leadership of the church would remain qualified and effective. And so we pray for Cornell in that. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I just wanted to, uh, if I can, offer this exhortation that uh, Peter offered to the elders. And he said this in verse 2 of chapter 5. Shepherd the flock of God among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sort of gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. I've known Cornell for probably close to 38 years now, I guess, and uh, it's been a blessing to... Uh, Watch him grow as a brother in the Lord and in Christ. And I just want to offer that exhortation and then close with this prayer. Father, we do ask that you would grant grace to Cornell as he exercises and serves in this capacity as uh, an under-shepherd and your flock. And Father, we look to you and to your Son, as the chief shepherd, to guide us through your word and by your spirit. And may you get all the glory and praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.